Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and we've got a whole new year of horror ahead of us. I'm beyond delighted to say that we're kicking off 2022 with one of my very favourite living writers. We're talking top tier. It's John Connolly, the author of the Charlie Parker series of crime, horror and mystery novels. He's also the proud father of a brand new mega anthology, Shadow Voices, 300 Years of Irish Genre Fiction. John is the only rival to Stephen King as my most read and reread author. The Charlie Parker books mean a great deal to me. There are 19 of them today, and I've been reading them for two decades. And for a while, I reread the whole series so far each time a new one came out. So. Suffice to say, I was pretty excited for this interview. I think I just about managed to keep my boyish enthusiasm in check enough to ask him some interesting questions. It was made doubly hard by the fact that this was recorded before Christmas and I broke my cardinal rule of not drinking whilst podcasting. So after starting with a comparison of our seasonal boozing habits, John and I move on to this wide-ranging chat about... Everything from anti-fantasy snobbery to genre splicing at its best. We cover the main landscape, definitions of mystery, of metaphysics, John Donne, dementia and the heady allure of violence. (laughs) It's a slightly longer episode than normal, but John is one of my true literary idols, so frankly, I don't care. I mean, after all, Shadow Voices alone could be the topic for an entire episode, but... Parker fans, don't worry. I do get him about 25 minutes in and then it's all Parker all the way to the end. So, off we go. To a misty marshland on the edge of the American continent. With a gun in hand and an open mind. Let's talk scared. Well, John Connolly, the hugest welcome to Talking Scared. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me, Neil. Much appreciated. Absolute delight. Uh, before we get into the obsequiousness and the sicker fancy... Oh, no. Oh, oh, please, don't, don't hold back. <laughs> <laughs> How are you and where in the world are you right now? Oh, I'm fine. I'm in my kitchen at home in Dublin. I have two dogs sleeping merrily behind me. Um, and I've treated myself to a glass of wine, even though it's midweek or nearly kind of midweek. Uh, so I'm good, thank you for asking. Well, it's nearly Christmas and the apocalypse is looming, so if we can't drink now, when can we, you know? Oh, and that's that's my view entirely. God forbid that I would die with undrunk bottles of wine in the basement. <laughs> that fucking a waste. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Indeed, I've got I've got a beer advent calendar that I'm making my way through. That's, that's my daily... Oh, that uh, sounds fantastic. What a great idea. I've got a kind wife. I noticed there's a gin one, but a gin advent calendar seems like a very slippery slope where you're opening it first thing in the morning and think, you know, daddy's got a little straightener. Yeah, and if I drink gin, I become a sort of 1950s divorcee, so I uh, I don't really go near this stuff. <laughs> Funny, champagne does that to me. If I drink champagne, I end up lying on the floor with a headache holding my head going, oh, when want to die, nobody understands my pain. So gin is about as hard as I get. My days of anything beyond beer and Baileys are behind me, really. <laughs> But anyway, I'm I'm glad you're in Ireland because it's particularly fitting considering your brand new well, I was gonna say book, but but book doesn't really seem to do it justice. We we could say monolith, I suppose. It's called Shadow Voices, three hundred years of Irish genre fiction, which you've compiled 
edited and annotated. And it is massive. It's like over a thousand pages long. And it's like genre fiction of every stripe, including, of course, horror. First, though, if any of my listeners have just gone, hang on, we're here for Charlie Parker. Everyone calm down. I've been reading Charlie Parker books for 20 years. Trust me, we will get to them. But Shadow Voices is deserving of much attention, not only because it appears to be a serious labour of love and commitment, but also because it, I think it actually provides a perfect framework for conversation about your own fiction, which we will get to, because I think your books sit right on this line of debate around genre and literary fiction. So, so yeah, that's my setup, John. Over to you. Can you tell us a little bit more about Shadow Voices before we start? How did this mammoth project come to be? Well, I suppose it had been a lingering thing. When I began working on the Parker books, when I began thinking about writing novels, which would be in the mid-1990s, I looked around in Ireland and I couldn't really see very many models for what I wanted to do, um, not alone in mystery fiction, but also in in horror and fantasy literature. And yet in the 19th century, um, and maybe into the early 20th century, Irish writers dominated. We dominated horror, we, do- we dominated fantasy. We were effectively, if we weren't inventing those genres, we were pioneering them. Um, and that included detective fiction as well. And I'd always been curious about what happened. Why suddenly in the 20th century, do, do Irish writers effectively stop writing genre fiction? I, Peter Haining, who I don't think ever met a story he didn't want to anthologize, um, <laughs> uh, commented he was he was putting together an anthology of Irish fantasy writing in the early 1970s. And what he complained about in his introduction was that he, he couldn't find any contemporary writing to include in it. You know, he could find older horror and fantasy writers, couldn't really find any new ones. And that was kind of also true of, of detective fiction in that most people who were writing either horror or fantasy literature or particularly detective fiction and who are Irish had largely gone abroad to do it. Um, Ireland had turned into very fallow ground for genre fiction. And so I was curious about that. And then one of, as I mentioned, I think at the start of the introduction to, to Shadow Voices, when I still, there was a time when I was happy enough to go to award ceremonies, the things I don't do now. Uh, I, I think it's a very bad idea to, to get invested in them. And I can think of fewer ways to, worse ways to spend an evening than eating chicken in a basket and wait to see if you've won something, you know. <laughs> um, that's bad enough if you're playing bingo. Um, so I, I, but I, when I still worried about these things, I, my second novel, Dark Hollow, had been nominated for a prize at a festival in Ireland. And the festival, like most festivals, kind of wanted you to at least show up you know, for the ceremony, uh, because otherwise it's a pretty dull way for the people holding it to, to spend an evening. And so I remember going down to this festival, and before the official announcement of the winners, we were all given food, you know, which again is always a bad sign. You think, how long is this thing going to take that they have to feed us a meal before we go inside? And I sat down, and it suddenly turned out that I was sitting beside one of the judges, who was a really well-known uh, author and critic, still alive. Um, and he leaned over to me. He had a, he, I remember he had a fork full of bacon and cabbage poised at his lips uh, and he paused in the, the act of eating. So important was what he had to say to me. And he leaned over and he said, he said, you know, you write very well. He said, have you ever considered applying your talents to something more appropriate? And I remember thinking, okay, I figure I probably haven't won then. And I was wondering, could I, like, could I hit him up for petrol money having wasted <laughs> four hours getting down to this thing? 
And so there was this attitude in in Ireland about genre literature. And I mean, it's it's not unique to Ireland, but it is very persistent and very ingrained here. And Shadow Voices was an attempt to investigate why that might be um, and to point out to naysayers the sheer wealth of genre fiction that Irish writers have produced over the years, um, you know, particularly, I suppose, in areas of horror and fantasy. You know, we were dominant for so long. And, you know, four of the cornerstones of Gothic literature, for me, they would be uh, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, Melmoth the Wanderer, um, uh, Uncle Silas, and the picture of Dorian Gray. Um, so Maturin Wild, uh, Stoker, um, and Lefanu. Um, you know, the, the, they you can't really talk about genre literature without those Irish writers. Um, and I think we forget sometimes as well that C.S. Lewis, who created Narnia, was an Irish writer, was somebody who was proud of his Irish heritage. Um, and so it's it, it, we have been very influential. And, and I think what happens, uh, having spent a long time looking into this now to, to do Shadow Voices, two things happen. Um, and one is general and one is specific. The, the general one is that modernism happens at the start of the 20th century. You know, kind of, we're into the 1920s. And modernism distrusts anything with a plot. It distrusts popular fiction. It distrusts escapism. So immediately genre fiction is in trouble everywhere. It becomes it comes under assault from modernism, and in Ireland, uh, our first president, a man named Douglas Hyde, uh, before be, be, you know, while we were preparing, I suppose for rebellion, um, you know, there was for those who don't know Irish history, um, in 1916 we had our, our first successful rising against the British, which led to independence, but we were we were planning for that a long time beforehand and the planning was not just political or or you know dealing with arms it was also cultural and so we were latching on to things that were not english so uh, the irish language became very important stories uh, irish folklore anything that we could define ourselves against england and hyde gave a very famous speech where he railed against uh, shilling shockers and penny dreadfuls you know he was looking at genre literature and he said well actually genre literature it's not irish it's not rural, it's not Catholic, it's not concerned with the things that Irish people should be concerned with. And that feeds into the narrative of Irish fiction in the 20th century. Um, so it, it, because we're such a young country from the 1920s on when we gain independence, there's a conversation about the nation that we want to be. And genre fiction doesn't have a part to play in that. Serious literature does. Uh, particularly rural Catholic literature, but stories about vampires, about detectives, about, you know, ghosts, whatever they may be, this really rich heritage really gets thrown away in the 20th century. And I think Irish genre fiction could have survived one of those assaults from modernism outside or from political and cultural forces inside, but it really was going to struggle against both of them. And that's what happens. Well, so it's a all... very long answer to a short question, but it's a very good question. No, we, we, we like long answers on this show because the less I talk, the more you talk, the better. But I um, what, what I'm interested by there, and, and I picked this up in the intro to Shadow Voices, it, it's something that I don't, I don't quite understand, but I think it may be based on my outsider's perspective. So you, you point out, as you, you just did then, that there was this effort to de-anglicise Irish fiction, to, to make it, you know, uniquely and exclusively Irish in content and substance as opposed to British. And that included divesting it of horror and the fantastic because they were seen as other and not Irish. Now, that seems odd to me. 
considering the extent to which Irish identity seems to be aligned with the spectral and the numinous and, and dare I say it, the kind of the fey? Or is that, like I said, just my outsider's perception? No, no, I think I think that's very true. I think what was also probably true was, was that it was regarded as insufficiently serious. I think it had played its part before 1916, like I said, when we were trying to latch on to things that were uniquely Irish. And that included, as you say, that that particular kind of heritage, that that sense of folklore, like Hyde had collected uh, fairy stories and folk tales, you know, and, and had written some of them. So W.B. Yeats, um, you know, this was part of the cultural effort. Once we achieved independence, why would you be reading fairy stories? There seemed to be that kind of attitude. Um, you know, they, what's more important now is there was a, a writer named Daniel Corkery. He was a professor of English in Irish literature or English. No, he's professor of Irish down in University College Cork. You know, and he very much defined Irish literature and he said, you know, Irish literature, it should be rural, it should be Catholic, it should preferably be written in Irish. You know, and, and he regarded writers who had gone away like uh, Oscar Wilde or George Bernard Shaw as essentially traitors. You know, it be, the narrative became, the, the discourse became really, really quite poisonous. And he acknowledged that they were producing interesting writing. Um, and that to some degree they tied into perhaps aspects of our heritage. But his view is they should have stayed at home and written uniquely Irish literature that 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 conformed to, to the rules that he and his kind had set. And you know what happens after that is it feels like when you wanted like when I to talk about you know when I mentioned earlier the, the, the 1990s when I began writing, it almost felt like you had to go and introduce yourself to a committee of old men with patches on their elbows <laughs> and they'd have a pipe. And they'd say, well, what do you want to write? And you might go, well, I, I kind of thought I might write, you know, a, a mystery novel with a hint of the supernatural. And they'd look at you through palls of tobacco smoke and say, well, have you written your book about the famine yet? And you'd say, <laughs> you'd say well, well, I was kind of hoping we might, I might sidestep that and go straight to, to detective fiction. And they go, no, 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 maybe have a go at the famine first, you know, and then come back to us at the end of that. <laughs> um, and when I was going up, the Irish literature was colourless and miserable. You know, because we had excised from the canon almost all of, of that genre writing and the individuals who created it that, that lent it so much colour. Because frequently people who write odd, colourful fiction are odd, colourful individuals. Mm. And instead, most of the fiction that, that, that I was presented with uh, in school was about old men dying in rural cottages. Literally that. Uh, I remember I, I had to read a book called Men Withering, which was the novel for given to 15-year-olds in, in Irish schools, which is just about that. It's about an old man dying. And uh, By the end of that book, not only had I taken a turn against that old man, I had probably taken a turn against old people generally, you know, which was not a, not a good thing. Um, and, and, and actually, the other thing about it was I loved reading. I, I was a child brought up on books, uh, and I was a, a Catholic reader with a small C in that I, I would read anything you put in front of me. And I think after being forced to read Men Withering, I stopped reading for about two months. I couldn't pick up a book. And I still now think what that did to, you know, I went to an all boys school and, and it was a pretty, it was not the, the nicest school in the world. It was, a, and it, was a, it was an okay school, but it wasn't anything fancy. There wasn't a blade of grass in the place. Um, you didn't do art, you didn't do music, you didn't do biology. It was a very much a meat and potatoes education. But I remember thinking what the effect of reading that book must have been like on young boys who didn't really understand the appeal of reading to begin with. I suspect they probably never picked up a book again. If someone is presenting this to you and saying, this is literature, 
this is what Irish literature is about. You might think, well, whatever else I do later in life, I'm not going to torment myself with this stuff. You know, no matter how well written it might be, it wouldn't speak to you in any way. Um, and I suppose at least then I could go back to my bookshelves and I could look at the volumes because I was reading Stoker. I was reading M.R. James. Um, I was reading a certain amount of detective fiction, but really my grounding was in was in horror and fantasy. And eventually they were the books that brought me back to reading. I could return to these books and, and think, God, you know, there is more to Irish literature than this kind of miserabilism. And, and it's a weird thing. I'm, again, I mentioned in the book, you know, quite recently, Colm Tobin, who has just been awarded a David Cohen Prize, I think, in, in, in England, and who is a very intelligent man and a very good writer, was interviewed a couple of years back and said, you know, I don't read genre fiction. I don't read any of it. The prose is, is he said, it's, I think it's empty, nothing. And I remember thinking, well, hang on a minute, apart from the fact that that's an unacceptably, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that I, that I agree with that. He had written a couple of years earlier a, a long introduction to Dracula. Now, the last time I looked, Dracula still had vampires in it. You know, it was conceived that the most famous piece of genre literature arguably ever written. And it's almost like with genre, with genre fiction, if you can put a penguin on the spine that and call it literature in some way, it ceases to be genre fiction, that it can't be both. Um, and, and in Ireland, we're still struggling with that to some degree. Uh, it becomes acceptable as, as soon as you can call it a classic. But it was genre fiction long, long before it became a classic. And it's still genre fiction, even when it becomes a classic. But it's almost like some writers and critics and readers have to make an excuse for reading it. And, you know, putting it in a penguin jacket, and as much as I, I love penguin books, and I, I always feel slightly more intelligent just for having one, um, it, it, you know, it, it, it allows them to some degree to gloss over the fact that some of this fiction is, is genre fiction and to claim it as something else entirely. Well, you, you go into a lot of detail about the, I suppose, the nature of genre, what it is, how we can define it. Most importantly, I think, what it does, which which it what it does is it prioritizes pleasure and pursues an emotional impact which to me is much preferable to a purely intellectual response i like smart books but if they don't make me feel anything i'm not gonna go back to it or possibly even finish it you know yet what i did like for all this play and talking about genre is that you don't internally seg segregate these stories in shadow voices into their own categories so you've got like mysteries sitting alongside horror and fantasy and adventure stories and they're all cross-pollinating and informing each other and that approach sort of presents genre not as a competitive field but more like a i don't know a cooperative literature of opposition i suppose yeah i, I mean that was in part it was it was a function of, of putting the, the book together chronologically. There, there had been um, last year a book called The Art of the Glimpse which by Sinead Gleeson, which was a, an anthology of, of Irish short stories, mainly concentrated on the 20th and the modern, a little bit of 19th century fiction. Um, 
and you know, not taking any issue with 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 the stories included. But it was a book that was arranged alphabetically, which took me as a very odd thing to do, because there is no particular benefit to arranging an anthology alphabetically, because it prevents the reader. And it also didn't have any introductions, which is another thing that I, I really intensely dislike about in, in an anthology, um, because I think both prevented by by not by doing things not doing things chronologically, you prevent the reader from seeing that kind of conversation, witnessing that kind of conversation you've just discussed. Those interrelationships between writers, the idea that X read Y, who mentored Z, you know, um, and also if you most readers, even very intelligent readers, there's a limit to their to their body of knowledge quite naturally, um, and so they're not necessarily going to be. Uh, have a lot, a great deal of information uh, about the biographical and critical background to a lot of these writers and their stories. So introductions and editors' responsibility is is quite serious. And it's actually quite easy to put together an, an anthology if you just if you just assemble a random sixty or seventy stories that you liked. It, so it becomes a question more or less of taste and and the editor's solely the editor's critical judgment. It's much harder to contextualize all of those stories. To essentially present a narrative, and that's what you know, Shadow Voices is, is I think four hundred fifty thousand words long. Of that, about one hundred twenty-five thousand words is original content, mm-hmm. is the commentaries, is the essays, is, is pointing out to people exactly what you say. And also, I, I, I mean, I love ghost stories and horror stories, but I struggle to read an entire collection of ghost stories at one sitting because they all begin to blend into each other after a little while. It's quite hard to reach the great and distinct. And it's not how that fiction generally would have been presented, in that a lot of these writers were often writing for periodicals. And so a periodical would put a ghost story next to a love story, next to a piece of humorous writing, maybe next to a recipe, or, you know, because um, I went through an awful lot of them, you know, an article on, on what the gentleman will be wearing this autumn. You know, there would be all of these things put together. And so you had this intense variety of experiences. And so Shadow Voices tries to replicate that and, and doing it chronologically allowed me to do that. But also it also allowed me to emphasize that actually there aren't that many writers, the more I read it, who just wrote in, in one area. I don't think they looked at fiction in that way. Um, one of those, somebody like L.T. Mead, who was a, an extraordinary writer, you know, wrote horror, uh, pioneered the medical mystery, was, was essentially responsible for creating the, the, the girl school stories that continue to this day. You can actually trace a line from her to probably J.K. Rowling. So she wrote all kinds of different fiction. She wasn't a purist in that way. The same is true of someone like Lord Dunsany. We think of Lord Dunsany, I suppose, primarily as the father of, of a particular stripe of fantasy writing. Uh, but he actually, his fantasy writing is only really at the beginning of his career. And after that, he goes into all kinds of things. He writes poetry. He writes very good detective stories. So, yeah, if you, if you, if you kind of put people in their little boxes, you're not really reflecting the reality of how people wrote. And the third thing is that we talk about genre now, but they weren't really talking about genre then. Those categories that we use are pr- products primarily of the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. And I think it's not until, if I remember right, I think it's 1886, is the first time detective fiction is used. You know, for a long time, when we talk about fantasy literature, we're talking about writing for children. That's why people like Dunsany and Lovecraft become slightly problematical at the beginning, because that definition of fantasy doesn't really apply to most readers and critics. They don't mm-hmm. really accept it. 
Um, you know, horror as a genre really only comes into being. We only begin talking about horror really in the seriously in the twentieth century. Before that, we have all kinds of things. We have the gothic novel, we have the sensation novel, and they blend into each other. Um, and I suppose I have a problem with that delineation now. I think it allows it it allows people to 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 define writers in ways that those writers would not have defined themselves and and to kind of corral really interesting writers in all forms of literature into very narrow bounds. Um, and I was trying to avoid that with Shadow Voices because one of the nice things about writing about Irish writers is, like I said to you earlier, because they were so instrumental in genre, in the creation of genre fiction, writing about them allows you to write about genre fiction in general. You know, and so it allows, yeah, so I can write about Maturin, who wrote Melmoth the Wanderer, and I can mm-hmm. write a little about Maturin because he was, you know, he was a cleric, a cleric in Dublin um, and a peculiar man. But he's also very important in the, in the birth of the, the, really the, the second incarnation of the Gothic. And that then allows you to talk about, you know, what is Gothic? What do we mean when we talk about Gothic literature? Similarly, to write about C.S. Lewis or Bob Shaw, who is a very interesting crime, uh, science fiction writer from Northern Ireland, allows us to write about, say, well, what do we mean by science fiction? Where did that term come from? Mm-hmm. What do, and, what, and how do we then apply it to these to these types of fiction? Because Bob Shaw is very different from you know from C.S. Lewis's. His science fiction is different from C.S. Lewis's. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it just became, in a way, it became really interesting, and also in a way, it became a kind of minefield. Um, you know, it's I could have written a second volume almost as long. <laughs> you know. And, yeah. um, just trying to deal with all of this stuff. And, and you know, having finished it, um, realizing that there was still so much left to say. There are so many writers who had been left out. All I can do, uh, uh, what's ongoing here in Ireland, and it's also, there's a very good publishing company called Tramp Press here, and another one called Swan River Press. Swan River Press specializes largely in fantasy and horror, and Tramp has just published think the seventh in a series called recovered voices and the, the latest book is a book of lost irish fantasy writing and we're all engaged in the same work which is gradually and slowly to reintroduce this writing to the canon because it has genuinely been excised from the canon of irish writing and most people are entirely unfamiliar with it and so while I can look at chatter voices and just see the stuff i'd missed or that i wanted to put in had i had more space I realize that this is an ongoing process of undoing almost a centuries of centuries worth of damage um, and reminding people of this extraordinary heritage that 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 we have and and how important Irish writers are to the, the entire concept of genre fiction. Well, yeah, and like I said at the start of this conversation, I feel like this book is the perfect way to frame your own fiction. Everything you said has kind of backed that up for me because you make this great point in the introduction. Um, It's quite quite funny, but there's a great deal of of, of sort of substance to it. You talk about your friend who doesn't like onions um, Mm. and, you know, you equate onions to genre and someone who who says they don't like onions doesn't doesn't realise that everything they eat has got onions in it to some microscopic degree and that you know without it they would starve if they ate nothing that had onions in it and you equate that to literature that the way that genre 
infiltrates and permeates all writing, whether you want to admit it or not, you know, that the snobs of the world be damned. And here, of course, I think we, we, we should turn to your own fiction and the ongoing adventures of Charlie Parker, because it's, it's a series of books. There are 19 now. As I said, I started reading them 20 years ago. And there's 19 books, assorted shorts and novellas that kind of link to it or are adjacent to. Um, and it, it's a series of, of stories which are permeated by genre in, in so many different ways, but never seem to avowedly settle on any one. I, I strongly imagine that most people listening to this will know who Charlie Parker is, what, what the game is. Before we start, on the off chance that they don't, can you just briefly introduce us to Parker, at least when we first meet him? Sure. Uh, Parker is is a man initially defined by loss. Um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, it was funny. When I started writing, I didn't realise how enthralled I was to conventions. When we begin writing, we, we most of us think we're doing something very different. You know, that means never, no one's ever done this before. Um, well, Parker initially, at the, certainly at the beginning, conforms to, to certain conventions within the genre. I think, uh, you know, he is a man who's he's lost his wife and child. He is entirely alone. He is almost entirely alone, uh, driven just by a sense of rage uh, and, and really nothing else, rage and guilt and, and pain. And I think the only, what I, what I managed to, what I realized as I was writing it was that this is a kind of dead end and, you know, it, it, it's been done before. And I realized that quite early on. And so the books became much more about empathy. How does one overcome loss? How does one live with pain? How uh, there is a certain type of individual who will look at other, who will look at others, who will experience pain and grief and loss and we look at others and think, I do not want them to, to go through what I have gone through. And I will do anything I can to prevent that from happening. And Parker begins as the first and turns into gradually into the second. And I was very influenced by a writer named Ross MacDonald, who is a Canadian-American writer. And is the great first great poet of empathy in the, in the mystery genre. He's also the first... Um, the first probably great psychological novelist the genre has produced. Um, he can reading him now. He's a bit too Freudian. I think everything comes down to Freud, but that was a product of his own upbringing. A very you know abandoned by his father, living in fifty or sixty houses during his teenage years, always surrounded by women. Um, but he's also very interesting that he's a Gothic writer. You know, he acknowledged his own Gothic heritage, and there are touches of the. At least, refer he uses the language of the supernatural throughout his. Certainly, as as his books progress, they're not supernatural novels, but they co-opt certainly imagery from the more extreme end of, of Gothic literature. I think so. All of those things fed into what I was doing and fed into Parker. And I hope the books have got have got a little richer as as they go on. I became very conscious that 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 each novel should progress things, but it should also maybe undo the conventionalism of of the earlier books i think even though i still think they're they're odd books but i hope the books have got odder as they've gone on <laughs> and increasingly you know in, indebted to the supernatural the earlier books are quite ambivalent or they they trade on ambiguity is mm -hmm. is parker seeing these things is parker 
a man just is he haunted by grief in that old sense of the word you know that he's just yeah you know he spends too long looking into coffee cups or whatever it might be or listening to blues music and gradually it becomes apparent that actually something much odder is happening with him and and he is stranger than we have been led to believe and and in a way that he doesn't understand what's interesting about parker is that he doesn't really know who he is yeah and you, you can argue that we know more about his true yeah. nature than he does yeah, and even that's been kept, you know, and, and clear. it's clear that his child knows something about him yeah. that he doesn't know. And and part of the progression of the books is, I suppose, moving towards that revelation. And at the moment that revelation comes, the books will have to end. I, mm-hmm. hmm. I mean, you said odd, right? And, and they are very odd. And I mean that in the best possible way, because I told you that you'd be sick of fancy and obsequiousness, but I, yeah. um, I think they are the most original blending of, um, shall we say, noir or crime fiction and the supernatural that I've ever read. Because lots of people try that stuff. Lots of people who have like, oh, it's a werewolf detective or it's a te- detective that's dead. And, you know, there's all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it almost always, to me, feels like a gimmick, like someone actually trying to sledgehammer together two different modes for commercial purposes. There are exceptions, but they are rare. Your books are genuinely odd and they they do begin as these kind of brutal crime novels. And then with each subsequent volume, they become something stranger. And as you said, in the middle section, it is still possible to reconcile the supernatural as the product of grieving and the empathy that you mentioned. But in more recent installments, it's kind of hard to say that that supernaturalism isn't front and center. And I also enjoy that there's like, I was actually thinking back over them and trying not, because I've been rereading um, a book of Bones and I was trying to cast my mind back over the series and not just focus on that one. Uh, and it made me realize just how much lore you've established. There are gods and demons and maybe angels and malign agents, these mysterious backers, all of that. How much of that was plotted early on, John? Because if it's been designed on the fly, that is quite some thinking on your feet. <laughs> I, I'd like to say that I was a planner, but I, I'm not. I, I, I don't even play chess. I, my kids despair of me because I, I don't appear to be able to think more than one move ahead. I, you know, I wrote the first book and genuinely, A, didn't expect that to be published. Um, and then had to live with what I'd done to some degree. Um, and then each book has been a gradual progression. Um so no, I I didn't know, and and there are points in the books where I I, I can kind of do divisions. The first four books up to the White Road form a kind of unit, and then mm-hmm. I took two years off. I'd actually because I was quite young. Um, my first book was published when I was thirty, and I suddenly found myself a published writer, and. And the only smart, I'm not a very bright person either. I know that sounds like false, but I'm really not that. I, I look at other writers and would think, oh, I, I'm friends with writers who just, I was come home feeling slightly cowed. Um, but I, I, I took time out after those first four books and I wrote a collection of short stories and I wrote a kind of standalone novel, but that was really in the same universe. And actually had some, Carol Parker appears very briefly in it. Yeah. Well, can, I, can I just say, up. that was weirdly about the first thing I read by you, and I remember reading it. This is, this is, this is Bad Men, right? Bad I remember men, reading yeah. it and then thinking, like, who is this detective that they randomly mention for no good reason? And then, then, it, then, then, then it dawned on me when I read every dead thing. <laughs> and it's true. A, a lot of standalone novels, by certainly by mystery writers, 
you can usually the tonally they don't change very much. You can you can see that with a bit of engineering that they could have been a, a book in the series. But I actually wanted time to think about what I was doing and what I suddenly realized I was going to be able to to write and publish for longer than I'd expected. And what kind of writer did I want to be? And in that sense, Nocturnes was very important to me to write a series of ghost stories, to try voices, to mm. experiment with genre. Um, and after that, the books become less ambivalent about the supernatural, I think. And, and Bad Men and, and Nocturnes had a part to play in that. So the, the book after that hiatus was Black Angel. And Black mm-hmm. Angel is, is a pretty supernatural piece of fiction and begins to establish that lore that you're, that you're talking about. And also, I would get I used to get frustrated with the genre as well, the mystery genre, because it seemed like the, the characters didn't have any memory. You know, they didn't remember the, the last case, and they very occasionally somebody might mention that they'd once been married, but you know, their wife had died or something. But there was no ongoing sense of them as a person dealing with this grief. And I very consciously wanted to write a series of novels that could be read out of sequence. But if you read them in sequence, you were getting parts of a, of a puzzle, of a larger picture. And a character who might have just been mentioned in book five might come out center stage in book 15. And I will remind you of who they were, are, and I'll, I'll explain their context. But that was I, I, I realized I could do something more ambitious. And that was an, an effect. A lot of mystery writers only read mystery fiction. It's the same just true if there are fantasy writers who want to read fantasy writing and there are horror writers who don't seem to read outside. There are kind of, to go back to Shadow Voice a little bit, those lines of demarcation a little bit. But, but it's very prevalent in crime writing. And I think it's because crime writing has often regarded itself as the intellectual wing of the genre party. You know, <laughs> it's, it's flying the flag for rationalism. And it, has a, it doesn't just distrust other genres. It does look down on them a little bit. And the one it particularly looks down on is, is horror. It despises horror, despises the supernatural, because they are, it's horror and the supernatural are the antithesis of crime fiction. One is rational and one is anti-rational, not irrational, but anti-rational. Um, and crime writing has often seen itself as, as, as being in opposition to it. There are still mystery critics and mystery bookstores that probably don't think I should be on the shelves because what I'm writing doesn't conform to that very rationalist viewpoint, even though they can, they might sit, they might admire the writing or, or some of the, the the thinking behind it, but but they would they would take issue with whether it actually is mystery fiction in that sense. Um, and equally, I have the same problem with perhaps the the horror and fantasy communities who look at it and see well, I think it's it's well, it's crime writing. That we all have these kind of little narrow these narrow focuses. I remember when I wrote Book of Lost Things, uh, which was a hugely personal novel for me, and probably the book of mine that has endured more than any other, certainly across different languages. Yeah. But the the most hostile reviews for that came from, from fantasy writers. I mean, really, just and one of the reasons why I stopped reading reviews, really, because they, they were people who were protecting their patch a little bit. And, and felt a little bit as though this was an incursion from somebody who, who didn't have any place in it. But again, to go back to that word Catholic with a small c, I, I've always had a very open attitude to genre. I love genre. I, I love, and, I, and as I said to you, as you mentioned, all fiction is ultimately genre fiction. 
or at least you can argue that all fiction has genre embedded in its DNA. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a purist. If I was a purist, I wouldn't be writing the Parker books. The Parker books would have would resemble something different entirely. This is why I quite carefully named this show Talking Scared, because I didn't want horror <laughs> anywhere near the title. Because I thought, you know, anything can be scary in the right hands. And it opens up the landscape to a lot more options and and a diversity of, of, of books and to talk about and authors to talk to. Uh, I and what's come up again and again and again this show is outside of marketing terms, the irrelevance of of genre division increasingly as we go along. Oh yeah, it just, it just makes bookstores easier to organise. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's all it really does. Yeah, and it feels like your books are a testament to the the permeability of genre definition. Well, I I, I always liked calling them mysteries because mm-hmm. if you go back to the the original uh, you know a, a mystery was essentially a, a revelation from the divine, mind of the divine that couldn't be understood by human reasoning you know there's a genuine numinous quality to 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 that original conception of mystery mm-hmm. and and it's that's much more interesting than something that involves you know inspector miggins solving his latest crime and you know it turned out to be you know the woman who owned the bakery or whatever it might be I, that there's a place for that but it seems like I, I, I would get very aggrieved with people who seem to define mystery fiction as you know anything, you know, from the birth of Sherlock Holmes to the death of Poirot, um, and it could only be within a you know there were particular environments that suited. You know, Christopher Brookmar, who's a very interesting writer, a couple of years back wrote um, a murder mystery that's set on the space station. So it's effectively a kind of, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's moving on a hundred years from the stuff Agatha Christie used to write, right, where you were on a boat on the Lyle or you're on the Orient Express or everyone was stuck on an island. It's a contained environment, which is what traditional crime novels thrive on. They need that containment. And but the amount of animosity got because it, it was set in a space station and there was a space station on the front of it. People, well, this is science fiction. And you know, if, it's like if you set a mystery in the wild in, in the wild west, it becomes a western. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 definitions used are so narrow that I get inc- so frustrated with it. Um, and so, but there's part of me that gets quite glad when when people object and say, "Well, I, I don't <laughs> think it's mystery fiction," because then you can actually have a discussion and say, "Well, well why? Why are we thinking this way?" Um, well, I mean, what's fascinating about your books is that whilst they are mystery, I sub- I'm going to use, I'm, I'm going to be my own terminology here but whilst they are mystery with a small m in that they are about mm. you know often a crime and there is often a perpetrator and who's done what they're, they're actually the real mystery is much more metaphysical isn't it you know it's more about like what is reality and who is parker really what is parker really what's his purpose they're they're the true mysteries to be unveiled now not the actual culpability for a crime Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and, and I've never had a, a book in which you know the ghost did it. That doesn't it. You know, in fact, on one level, the books are quite carefully constructed so that there is always a conventional explanation for what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not something, but but it's quite clearly in the background that 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 that's something much stranger and odder. And I had a very good point. And now it's what was the question you just asked me? <laughs> The, the mystery in in the heart of your stories is is much more oh, yeah. well, the, metaphysical. The, the, word you, the word you use is metaphysical. I have to I, let me blow some smoke to in your direction as well because these are really interesting questions. But very deliberately, when I wrote my first novel, the, the first words in the book are not mine; they're John Don's. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there are lines from, from a John Donne poem, for I am every dead thing, I am re-begot of absence, darkness, death, things which are not. Donne is the great metaphysical poet. And and at that early stage, I, I was putting down that flag. I, I realized that I wanted didn't want to write conventional mysteries, that I wanted to write something odder. I wanted to write something that had a concept of metaphysical to it. And using a Donne quote was a signal. The title of the book comes from John Donne. That was a signal, or at least for me, it was a signal. You know, some people like you would have picked up on it. Other people didn't. So building on from that, that focus on the metaphysical and the numinous, just like you said, the first four books in the series are a kind of a unit. You could argue that A Book of Bones, which I believe was book 17, is, is a big end to a major arc that I think begins probably with The Wolf in Winter. Would, would you agree? Oh yeah, yeah, I, I, it, and it, it comes back to that book. It, it performs a circle. And I remember a writer when I wrote a time of torment. Uh, a writer uh, who was interviewing me said, "You should really have called it the Dead King. That would have been a much better title, and it would have been a better title. But it wouldn't have had all those books have an alliterative title. Yes, I wanted yeah. people to see that they all hung together. Yeah. But also, a book of bones took that. I guess that." fantasy stroke supernatural aspect as far as it could possibly go without the novels collapsing. I don't think it's actually possible for me to go much further than that without the series ending or the books just, or the whole thing falling apart or the books becoming something that they're not meant to be. And so I'm very, I'm very deliberately after that, the, the book that follows the dirty South has no supernatural elements whatsoever to it. None. It goes back to an earlier Parker, you know, there's a brief moment, but it's it's clearly his conscience. He is having a kind of argument with his conscience. Uh, but but those supernatural elements aren't there. And it was because I had to take a huge step back after Book of Bones. It does feel, that book, like you pulling out all the stops. And this is, this is me going back to the metaphysics we just mentioned, because... Yes, it's packed with plots and character and information. There's a lot of research in that book. But one of the things that really stands out is how much it lets you delve into, for want of a better word, the psychogeography of the land. And it seems like that's become increasingly a kind of obsession of yours. Is that a fair suggestion? This, this link between history and humanity and the psychology and the land itself. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think, again, The Wolf in Winter was an attempt to explore that a little bit. Um, Book of Bones, very much more so. Um, there's that, what's that lovely line that Stephen King has in, in Pet Cemetery that he talks about that the land was poisoned, mm -hmm. that there's something had seeped into it. I, I mean, Book of Bones is a book that I, I think for readers is, some readers like it, some readers, it's very long. It very deliberately has ghost stories embedded in it. Mm -hmm. um, I was enthralled to Dickens for that book. Um, I'd gone back I, and I'd, for various reasons, I'd been rereading uh, Bleak House, uh, which I think is, is just, it's, it's an extraordinary novel. It's the birth of so many other genres, but it, it, it's also just in itself an extraordinary piece of writing. But what I loved about Dickens was that he would take those moments to diverge um, and you would have stories or incidents that seemed kind of inconsequential, that didn't seem to fit the core narrative, but still enriched it. Um, and so very deliberately, 
Book of Bones is actually four short stories embedded in it, four mm-hmm. horror stories embedded in it. Um, but yeah, that fascination. I, I had spent a lot of time walking the areas. I, I, I said to Jenny, I'm going to ramble off to uh, to England, I'm going to rent a car. And I had put together a list of places. I'd spent the previous six months reading um, a lot of books about English folklore and places that had repeatedly attracted uh, like successive religions or successive settlements and had made a list of them. I just went to London and hired a car and I had a map and I drove around them and I, and I was picking the ones that would suit the books best, but I wanted to be there. I wanted to look at them and to say, well, actually this place works or I feel this there's an, an atmosphere here that, that ties into what I'm trying to do. And so it was very much a fun. And then I would go back to my hotel room where I, I was living, renting rooms above pubs and things. And I would write uh, while, the, while the experience was still fresh of being in those places to try and get, capture that sense of them. So, yeah, it is very much. A, and, and, but that's also, I, I mean, I'd love to claim that I, I that I, 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 that was original, but I, I was very influenced by another American writer, James Lee Burke. And Burke, um, writes it was one of the few mystery writers who had been touching willing to touch on the supernatural from quite an early stage it's not really very typical of american crime fiction but was also very much fascinated by landscape and the idea that if you get the landscape right you achieve a kind of resonance if you get landscape and plot in a kind of perfect balance you achieve a resonance in the books um and 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 I had always that had always stuck with me. But that's why I think his Louisiana books are much better than, mm. much more powerful than the books he sets in, say, Montana. There's something about the fact that Burke is very interested in corruption, not just the corruption of institutions, but of people, and he ties that into a landscape that's become poisoned. Uh, you know, Cancer Alley in Louisiana is where all of these petrochemical companies have set up and are destroying the environment. And he's also got these, you know, the, the the swamps where you've got this constant process of decay and rebirth and the dead feeding into the living. And that's a perfect atmosphere for the books he writes. And and the books wouldn't work as well if they were set somewhere else. And like I said, that's why I don't think the, the Montana books have the same kind of power to them because they don't have that in the landscape. Mm. Um, and so for me, when I, when I began writing the Parker books, I did try to look for somewhere that hadn't been colonized before that hadn't been used in that way. Um, I didn't want to just set books in New York or in Boston, where if you threw a metaphorical stone, you did a metaphorical detective, you know. I wanted to write something different. And when I went to Maine, because I'd worked in Maine, um, I saw this contrast between a very developed East Coast, where it's touristy and there are these picture-perfect villages, and the majority of the state, which is forests and a degree of poverty, uh, difficult land, insular people. And I thought I could do something interesting with this because I was bringing, I didn't want to just write imitation American crime novels. There are writers who who do that really quite well. There are European writers who write American crime novels in an American idiom. That didn't really interest me. What I was trying to do, I suppose, was apply a European sensibility to the American crime novel and transform both to my satisfaction. And so I saw these forests and I thought of fairy tales. 
Now, the first thing Americans think of when they look at forests is not fairy tales. They think of snowmobiling trails and, and shooting elk and deer and things. You know, they don't think in those terms. I saw them and, and I thought of the Brothers Grimm. And so that fed into what I was doing. So immediately there becomes a point of connection with a different tradition. And so a, a lot of my Parker novels, they have elements of fairy tales and folklore mm. in them. Because that was what I thought. That was how I approached these books. And, and they're the only thing that distinguished it. Like I said, I, I don't have any interest in, in writing the kind of novels that an American could write. Why would I do that? They write perfectly good crime novels themselves. I think I was trying to create a hybrid that had not existed before. Um, but when you do that, you'll alienate some people. Other people will go, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting thing to do. But... But purists really won't like it. Purists don't like hybrids. Well, it's interesting you mentioned all that, because in Shadow Voices, you actually argue that Irish crime writing is is inextricable from, from place and setting, because you, you use this phrase that it requires the traversal of twin landscapes, both the psychological and also the geographic, which was hence my question a minute ago about psychogeography. Um, but I've I've actually been to the part of Maine where all this takes place. Um, I, I lived for a, a season in Wiscasset. Oh, Wiscasset, oh, okay. Just just along the coast. And I remember I actually read one of your books sitting. I, I worked in an inn right on the coast. And I remember every day sitting like on the, the little jetty reading one of your books, looking out over these, these salt marshes and thinking, well, well this is weird. <laughs> but, it, but it's interesting that you mentioned, you, you actually you said the word colonise. You said, you know, you, you want to say something that hadn't been colonised. And I was going to say, like, if as a massive horror fan, it feels like Maine has been colonised for genre purposes by Stephen King. Did you not feel any pressure from that in setting that the books in Maine? No, because it, because initially I still thought I was writing mysteries, but just a different conception of mysteries. And King, although I had read him when I like everybody read him as a child, you know, that probably makes him feel very old when he hears people say that. But I, I remember reading him in primary school. But for me, King was still primarily a horror writer. And in recent years, I, I suppose he has kicked against that definition of himself, mm. and probably rightly so. And it's actually become, you know, Billy Summers' his most recent book is, is a, I mean, it has a brief nod to The, the Shining, but is a very straightforward piece of, of, um, of mystery fiction. So it's almost like he was heading south towards conventional mystery writing, and I was heading north towards... Uh, a more ambivalent attitude towards mystery fiction. So we're like moving in different directions. But yeah, here's the elephant in the room. Yeah. Uh, if you're writing anything in Maine, it comes with an awareness of, of King's influence uh, and his influence, physical influence on the landscape. If you go up to Bangor, you know, he built the wing on the library. There's this, ex, this you know, Bangor has a, has a library that would most cities would kill for. And, and it's largely due to, you know, to Stephen King putting money into it. So a bit like, you know, James Patterson, I may not particularly want to read very much of James Patterson's fiction because it, it is cookie cutter. And yet at the same time, there's a man who, you know, has supported libraries, has supported independent bookstores. He's very much on the side of right. Um, so, uh, but yeah, King, yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's hard. And I guess the, the, the more supernatural the books became, the more aware I was of that. Um, I mean, I've, I've interviewed a couple of times. I've never broached the subject of him going, you know, it's okay, Stephen, do you think I'm, I'm trespassing on your patch? 
It feels like your main is very different, though. And I think it goes back to what you were saying about perhaps bringing a different perspective. Because the, the main of the park, don't get me wrong, they're not all set there. I, I love when he goes south as well. I like when he goes to Europe. But, but when he's in Maine, it, it feels a much less suburban place. So King's Fiction is all about normality being kind of riven by the uncanny and, you know, Derry being torn apart by Pennywise the Clown. Mm. Your main is much wilder. It, you know, the Aristook County and um, and all that part of the world, it feels much more psychogeographic and much more in the tradition of folk horror, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, the- I, I think that's I think that's probably true. I think King is very interested in the intrusion of the the supernatural or the odd into into a middle class or working class urban urban mm-hmm. environments. Um, I because I come from a small island off the <laughs> at the extreme end of Europe where there really isn't anything bigger than a deer and, and probably nothing much more threatening than the odd weasel to go to, to Maine and to go to see these extraordinary woods where if you get lost in them, probably not going to be found again, mm. you know, and I not in any position to survive there. Um, and, and to see this as a kind of, as an environment that is threatening, but also to see these two environments almost coexisting there, there are, for me, they were like two worlds living side by side, this regimented, ordered um, environment of, of, you know, Portland's a lovely cosmopolitan city. It's got like three art colleges. It's, I think it's got more, more restaurants than anywhere other than San Francisco and, and certainly more used record stores than anywhere I've ever been anywhere. Um, and yet it exists, you know, two hours away from it, you have a completely different environment. Um, and and an older persistence and and i found that interesting i found that interesting because i i guess i look at it for king it's home for me it's an alien environment yes because one of the things you do really really well is and it's one of my favorite sort of conceits in in fiction is when you um kind of absorb local lore or local myth into your your own fiction it's something that it's always appealed to me one of my favourite supernatural oddities in your fiction, I'm not even sure if it's something you created or whether it is a, there, there is a legend there, but it's the, the black-eyed girl in the woods. Uh, I think she's just terrifying. A black-eyed girl living in the woods who lures you to your death. Who <laughs> lives in a, ho- a hollowed-out tree. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're all, that's all European. You know, that's all, that's all the influence of, of, of a different type of reading for me. Um, that has just permeated what I do um, and informed it, and and I'm I'm increasingly comfortable with that. Uh, mm-hmm. So I I actually very rarely use. I occasionally, if there's a particularly interesting piece of of local mythology, I, I'll use it. But but mostly what I'm doing, I think, is probably importing stuff from Europe. And I, you know why not? Because given that the whole country was colonized by people who were imported from Europe. Um, and what I think that's what's interesting about something like American Gods, you know, Neil Gaiman touching on that idea that, you know, maybe these people who came from Europe brought versions of their gods with them yeah. that are now struggling to persist in, in this in this environment that, that where they really don't belong anymore. Um, and I that a book, something like The Wolf in Winter um, takes that literally 
that idea of a church being transported from Northumberland uh, block by block as ballast in the in the in the, the in a ship, but actually bringing with it whatever had been living there, whatever old thing had been part of that landscape and that had then found its way into the nooks and crannies of this church. And suddenly this thing has found itself in a, in a completely alien environment. Um, and so I, those ideas, those ideas are not ones that generally speaking, I, I know an American wouldn't have written American gods. You know, American just wouldn't, that would not have been a series of thought processes that would have occurred to them. Only yeah. a European could have written a book like that. I um I had an email today from Neil Gaiman's publicist, so I've got fingers, toes, and eyes crossed that I can get him on the show to talk about that. Actually, um, go, going back a little bit to things we talked about a while ago. First start, we talked about Parker aging and how you know the, the Parker that we are dealing with now is a very different beast to the the the, the vengeful, the, the raging vigilante we first met. It's nothing like Bond or Jack Reacher. Every story he is. He's older, he's wiser, he's in some ways weaker. And as satisfying as it is to follow this kind of journey of self-improvement, I suppose, I've got to admit, John, I do sometimes miss the kind of violent rage of his earlier outings. So I was delighted when the Dirty South came out and took us back to the immediate aftermath of his wife and child's death, which is a horrible sentence to say. It's like meeting that old mate you haven't seen in ages who you love, but who's a complete fucking liability. Um, and it got me thinking about the recent books. As I said, Book of Bones kind of felt like it ended something. And I wonder what, whether that is why you wrote a prequel. First of all, did you want to get your hands bloody again? Did you miss old Parker? And also, was it a chance to kind of reset and take a breather after finishing that sequence? Probably both of those things. Yeah, very much about resetting. Uh, and each book, I've often said that each book is a reaction to the one that precedes it. So, you know, if you write... Uh, a, a very globe trotting thriller like which Book of Bones was to some degree. Um, the book, the next book, is going to be entirely in opposition to that. So, uh, uh, the Dirty South is set almost entirely in one small town. Mm-hmm. Parker really very rarely gets to leave it. Same after the Nameless Ones, which is another book I, I, I wanted to write. Again, a, a more conventional globe trotting thriller, I suppose, one that 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 I, I quite like espionage thrillers and I, I quite like Daniel Silva I thought oh you know I, I'd like to try my hand at something like that within the context of the series and say, see how the series might transform it the two the book that's coming out next year um, is are, are two short novels in one set entire all again almost entirely in Portland almost never move outside it uh, yeah so they become they become ways to reset I think, but like you, I I quite liked writing about an older Parker. Although Claire, who looks after a lot of stuff online for me, said it reminded her of how of how how much she didn't like him. <laughs> you know how much that earlier character is so difficult and so riven by pain. Um, and you know he is just looking, not just looking for trouble, but he has no interest in anyone other than himself. He has no interest in anybody else's pain. It's it's just his own. And all he wants to do in, in the Dirty South is get away from this town. You know, he doesn't care what's going on in it. He just wants to leave and gradually gets pulled back into it. I, I used to like reading Robert B. Parker, who wrote uh, the Spencer novels. And 
Parker kept Spencer in his mid-40s, kind of mid-40s, early 50s, when he could still kick down doors and punch people and they wouldn't be likely to get up again. But the books could never develop and they could never change. You know, they, they, that, that, that set the limits of what the book can do. And so I guess as Parker gets older, he's not able to do those things. He realizes his vulnerability. He's more reflective, I suppose. He's slightly more forgiving than he would have been. And, and so the texture of the books has changed. When I wrote those earlier, my first novel, I was in my mid-20s when I started it. Mm-hmm. And I'm in my mid-50s now. And so my view of the of raised children, my view of, of the world is, is maybe more nuanced than it was in those earlier books. But there was a release in it. I remember years ago interviewing George Pelicanos. And Pelicanos saying that, you know, he, his blood raced when he wrote violent scenes. You know, it wasn't just that the reader's pulse would increase. He said, you know, there's a kick for the reader, for the writer in producing scenes like that, for producing those where the guy gets up and just says, I'm going to, I'm going to fuck you up. Yeah. You know, for what you've done to me, I'm really going to make you regret it. And, uh, and you can fall into that trap a little bit, the attraction of, of writing in that way. See, I uh, feel bad was... now. I feel bad about myself because oh, no. no, you shouldn't. Because I got a real, <laughs> kick. I got a real kick out of writing the Dirty South. Oh yeah, you know that was that was great. It's it's this young guy in his thirties, you know, walk in a town. Where he's got he's brought all his guns with him, and the guy confronts him in the bar. You say he wants this guy to keep pushing him yeah, because cause... he knows, and he's looking at the guys around him and thinking, "I know exactly what I'm got." And he's Parker's not a big guy. But but he knows that actually if I hit you if I if I break your leg, if I hit you really hard in the face, those two guys you'll be on the ground before you can do anything about it. The thing is, he knows that you do it quick. And uh, when I was younger, I, I did. I spent a lot of time doing I, a couple of years doing Krav Maga because I was quite into. I, I wasn't really a martial arts guy, um, and I don't like doing classes with people. And so I I took a couple of years with this guy who would each week would do it and what was interesting about that it was only about hurting people as quickly as possible because you don't want to be in a fight fights are they hurt a lot you can't last very long you're not going to be able to stand up to four guys and a lot of that informed parker who looks at things and thinks okay i i know i'm not going to be able to if this lasts longer than 30 seconds i'm going to get hurt really badly and so i need to to do it quickly and to do it violently and to make the person involved really regret that they ever started it because then the other people around them will back away which is what happens in a fight you know actually the four guys with the other guy are probably not going to bail in if 10 seconds later the other guy the first guy is lying on the ground you know moaning um and so a lot of that informed informed parker but but you're right i i I enjoyed the dirty set and there was a part of me that thought actually be quite nice to write a few more of these (laughs) yeah but then then maturity and common sense kicked in well that's (laughs) it isn't it because maturity and common sense has entered into the stories themselves and it's great it's enriched the story massively and and it's much easier to root for Parker now. But there, I, I have this phrase that I use all the time when me and my wife are watching TV. We're currently watching Succession. Have you have you watched that at all? I'm watching that with my other half at the moment, so no spoilers. So no, I won't give any spoilers. But for example, Logan, the, the patriarch, is such an awful person. But there's nothing like when someone you outside the family kind of does something and Logan goes, you know, full in his own phrase, full fucking beast. Because I have this thing that me and my wife were talking about, about having our arsehole. Like, you know, somebody who is a bad, damaged, unpleasant person, but 
you've picked them for your side and watching them be unleashed against people that you like even less. There's a great satisfaction in that, in, in, in story. Um, so that's why I was delighted to see Parker kind of kicking hell out of people again. Yeah, in, in the books, I think that's probably part of the appeal of Angel and Louis, who are the two yes. guys who, who, start, who stand by him and who realise that they probably doom themselves by doing so. Because secretly, I think we all think, you know, if your next-door neighbour has borrowed your hedge trimmer and won't hand it back, you know, and is pretending that you never gave it to him. The idea you could pick up a phone and go, Bob, next door won't give me back the hedge trimmer. And 30 minutes later, there'll be a knock on Bob's door. And 35 minutes later, you will have your hedge trimmer back. Is really, really appealing, you know, to, to us nice middle-class people. The idea you pick up a phone and there are two guys who will just come to your aid and won't care. Yeah. If, it's, if you're in trouble, they're on your side, you know. <laughs> That's what yeah. we want. Yeah. Well... I want to finish off with a question, John, that you've probably been asked a million times. In fact, I know you have been asked it a million times, but I need to ask, do you have an end in sight for this story? I, I know what the ending... I'm always trying to be very careful because I was people gnashing their teeth and rending their garments. <laughs> I, I do have... I've always meant to kind of write a, a chapter that, you know, if a piano drops on my head... You know, or I, I, or I'm running down to three flights of stairs to get to the postman, and I take the wrong one, and everything goes black, and I, and I wake up on a cloud. That at least there would be an answer for people. So I know what that is, um, and I know Parker's identity. I know all of those things. Um, but I, I love writing these books, and I love looking at him, at the world through his eyes. Um, and I've never tired. I've never had to write the swimming pool book, but you know the one way I think I'm just knocking this one out because I signed a contract. That's not how I work. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I I keep I want to keep writing. I want to keep writing these books. Um, but yeah, if if you know, I, like any sensible middle aged man, I go to the doctor once a year. And if he said, you know, don't book any holidays after July, I would be able to give people. I think. A conclusion that would satisfy. So it's a case of you know what the end is, but you don't know how many books it's going to be till we get there. Yeah, I, yeah and I don't. If I do have to write an ending, I, I, I you know, I don't want to. I, I there's still so much of this world, you know, this world I want to explore. Um, and well, I'm delighted to hear that. I don't want it to end anytime soon. I, I still enjoy, and I take time out in between to write other things, whether it's Shadow Voices or He or the Book of Lost Things. So that I always come back to the Parker books refreshed. Um, so for now, yeah, they still have their place in the world. I'm actually going to ask one more question, John, because I know that I don't ask enough about craft on this show. And you've just prompted me to ask something because you just said then you don't write, you never phone it in. You don't write the book just to sell it. Right. And that does come through really clear. Not, not one of those books ever feels phoned in. But you do bring them out at quite a rate. And I wonder... What's your kind of plotting process when you're thinking, right, I need the next Parker book? Because you've got, it's kind of like the Marvel universe. You've got to balance the overarching narrative with a discrete story. How do you go about, you know, starting the next book? I just will usually have an idea, a very vague idea, a very vague notion. Um, and I might know one incident. I'll usually know the opening of the book. And I write that. It's I mean, it's, it's not it, it's not complicated for me. I, I write the opening and that'll be the first thousand words and I'll know the next thousand words for tomorrow, but I won't necessarily know any further than that. And, and the process of writing for me is the same process of discovery. Initially, the first draft is the same 
very similar to the process of discovery for the reader who's reading it. I, I kind of need to find my way into the book. I need to find my way into the characters. And and I do that by writing a little bit every day. And I know it seems like I, I, I turn them out at a fair old rate. But actually, I write very slowly. But I write very slowly every day. And if you write, for anybody who's considering writing, and I, I don't have much advice to give on writing, um, but it has to become a habit. It has to become something you do almost every day. There's no point in saying I'm going to spend my weekend writing. You're not. You're going to be tired. You know, do an attainable amount every day. I'm a full-time writer, and I rarely write more than a 1,000 words a day. But if you write a 1,000 words a day for, not, you know, let's say six months, that's the draft of a book done. And then you've got another six months just to rewrite it. Mm. And while you're rewriting it, that's one muscle. But it's not the same muscle you use for writing. So I can be rewriting one book in the afternoon and writing another one in the morning. And and that's how it works. But it, it, because it, it's a muscle that you use, it becomes ingrained. And the other thing is that um, for anyone who's trying to write, every book I've published, I've wanted to throw it away after 20,000 words. Every single one of them. And I'm reaching that stage with something I'm working on at the moment where I'm thinking, what in God's name was I thinking? You know, this is where I get found out and I should go back to, you know, I should get a proper job and my mother was right and this was never going to work out. Um, and and that's, the pro, that's the moment where doubt sets in. And it's also the moment where you begin, that little voice in your head goes, well, that wasn't a very good idea. And you, you, you have, but most writers are never going to run short of ideas. You'll always have a fresh idea in your head, and, and that's the voice that says, "I'll oh, throw that one away. You shouldn't have started that short story or that essay or that novel. This is a much better idea. So you put the other one in the drawer unfinished, and you start something else, and you begin to set a pattern. So I think it was Ray Bradbury who said, writers are people who finish things. And I think the really difficult thing for anybody who wants to write, and it doesn't matter whether it's a short story or a novel, is that you have to... If you're serious about it, and if you're actually going to make, not necessarily a career out of it, but a vocation out of it, the moment you write the first line, you commit psychologically to the last line. You have to do that. Mm. And it doesn't matter how slowly you write, you'll run into problems, but you have to resist that voice in your head that says abandon things. And and doubt is part of the process, and we all feel it. And I still feel it after, after all these years. I still begin a novel thinking, God, I, this maybe this is the one where I get found out, maybe where it all comes to an end. <laughs> and it's quite natural. But I think for the people who are trying to write, who maybe haven't finished something, who aren't published, it's a very difficult obstacle. Not, it's not an obstacle you get over it. It's just something you learn to live with. Well, considering I began this podcast as a kind of side project to trying to write a novel, um, which I haven't yet got anywhere near finishing, they are quite stirring words, so... Yeah, thanks very much. <laughs> well, really, so even even the fact that you've started puts you way ahead of most people. Wasn't it that lovely Woody Allen line, 75% of success is showing up? Yeah, yeah. You know, most people never show up. Yeah. Well, we'll finish off with the questions that I ask everyone. Okay. Can you recommend a book for my listeners to read and tell us why? I was thinking about it, and I suppose given the nature of the podcast, I thought I should pick a piece of a uh, certainly supernatural writing uh, and given the time of year i would pick michelle paver's dark matter that's a great pick yeah i just think it's one of the one of the best pieces of horror is it horror you know i remember getting into an argument with ramsey campbell who took issue with the fact that i defined horror as to do with all horror is for me is to do with the body the capacities of the human body whether 
it's 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 suffering. It's the idea that mm-hmm. we can suffer emotionally, psychologically, and physically. And so I'm reluctant to call dark matter a horror novel, but it's certainly a a novel that, of supernatural threat. And the fact that it's set in in the north in winter where there is no daylight seems to add to that. It's an incredibly claustrophobic piece of supernatural writing. And I reread it a couple of years ago and, and it hadn't its its power had not diminished. I don't think, and I don't think it's any injustice to Michelle, I've never met, to say that I don't think she's written a better novel than that. But it would be very hard, I think, to 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 reach those heights again. And and the fact that any writer manages to write something that good. Yeah. Um, I'm, it's just in awe of her. I think it's a fantastic piece of writing. Yeah, it's a great book. Few things off the back of that. Um, one, I think you're right, but in, in the argument that Ramsey Campbell, my thing on horror is I think if we're getting away from marketing terms and talking about aesthetic terms, for me, horror is about the body. It's about horror is about paralyzing the mind and the imagination, like revulsion, repulsion. Whereas mm. I think Michelle Paver and, and, and things like that are, are much more novels of terror, where you, there's that balance yeah. between fear and fascination. I think that's how yeah, I, I think would that's, a, that's it. a very good distinction to draw. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, if you like that, this is, you know, presumptuous of you, but I would recommend a book that's coming out early next year um, by an author called Ali Wilkes, uh, and it's called All the White Places, and it's a much more expansive polar ghost story. You know, it's very funny. I have been, I've just been asked to give that a quote. Oh, right. I think, I think, it's, a, I think it's Atria in the United States, and, right. and my editor's assistant asked me. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Well, Ali's coming on the show, and I, I've started it, but it, it is compelling right from the start. So I, oh, I hope you right, like it. Right. I wish I look, and I look forward to reading it. Excellent. Okay, well, and um, my last question, John, that I ask everyone, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this with you, what really scares you? <laughs> See, I... Uh, I was trying to find an answer to this that would be witty and funny. <laughs> and actually, the things that scare me aren't, funnily enough, um, are genuinely serious things. I don't have fears of spiders or enclosed spaces or heights or, or any of those things. Um, I mean, there are things that have crept into my books. I've put, I've put every sin I've committed into my books. But I've also put, I think, the things that appall me. And there's a constant metaphor in my books of cancer, of of characters whose bodies are turning against them. Um, and as I get older, I suppose that becomes less of an, an abstract concept and more of a reality. Um, and my father, I realized my, well, my father died of cancer. And I remember coming back from the United States, I'd been working in Maine and coming back to be literally be at his deathbed and to see him transformed by this by his own body turning against him. And I find that I find that terrifying. I find the idea of losing my reason terrifying. The idea I I on the my father's side of the family, his sisters all I watched them had Alzheimer's. And for a writer, the idea of losing that, losing that ability to focus, to to know what you are, to construct. This sounds like a bleak ending to something, but it's actually very tender. Uh, I mentioned Ross MacDonald earlier, who just was, I would not be writing had I not read MacDonald. And MacDonald in the 70s, I think he publishes his last novel in 1971 and, and then succumbs to what was then referred to as dementia, I suppose. And there's an extraordinary moment in, in Tom Nolan's biography of Ross MacDonald where his, his, his wife was a writer as well. His wife was a writer named Margaret Miller. And 
she heard his typewriter going and he hadn't been able to type because of the nature of the illness he was enduring. And she went in very quietly into his office and looked over his shoulder and he had put a piece of paper into the typewriter and over and over again he had typed the word broken. And that has always stuck with me, that moment of MacDonald, probably the last moment where he realised that that capacity he had, that fast, that facility he had to write was going. Mm. Um, and I find that I find that terrifying. That idea that that I might not be able to do that. Uh, writing has given me so much joy and pleasure. I mean, it's not always easy, you know. To be fair, I, I shouldn't really c- complain about any work that I don't have to put on shoes to do, you know, <laughs> or even get dressed properly, but. You know, I, I, when I was younger, I had a brief moment when I wanted to be a veterinarian. But other than that, writing would have been the only th- It was the only thing I was halfway good at or slightly better at than the guy I was sitting next to. And it has given me the opportunity to have conversations like this, to go into bookstores and meet readers and booksellers and people who think in similar ways about the things that I love. Um, and so I guess the idea of losing that would be would be awful to me. Uh, because I, I, I'm very happy doing what I do. Well, you've managed to turn a very sombre ending to an upbeat end there, John. So that, that was... <laughs> I hope so. I didn't mean to do that. But actually, yeah, you know, that's, that's why. Every, every week I ask that question and someone says something like, my children dying, and then I go, okay, thank you, goodbye. Um... <laughs> Losing a foot. <laughs> <laughs> that, that story about the typewriter broken, that puts me in mind of, I, I once saw um, a triptych of, of paintings uh, of self-portraits by somebody who was going through dementia. I can't remember the artist was. And and it goes from the, you know, an almost photorealist depiction of self to this sub-Picasso, just splashes of paint. And it's always haunted mm-hmm. me that that's what happens, that you, 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 anyway, that, you know, you lose that window onto the world and yourself. I know we've talked a little while, but, but you can see it. I, I, I love Terry Pratchett. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just thought Pratchett's Discworld novels are such a joy and such an extraordinary act of the imagination. But you can see that you can re- see the fragmentation mm. in the later books, yeah. where they they don't quite hold together. And I think is is the last one, The Shepherd's Crown. I think it may be, and and that's a lovely whatever the last of the Discworld books is, is a lovely, lovely book. Uh, and I think it was partly written with the aid of his assistant. But but I think it was it was fantastic that he went out on on a kind of a high tender note, yeah. you know, yeah. um, uh, I, I interviewed him once when I was a student writer, I was working for the Irish times actually covering, and he was doing it college an interview in college. I was the last thing I'll say to you. And I had come up with this very long, intricate question to ask him. And he looked blankly at me and he said, he said, that's for clever bloggers like you to figure out. And I thought that was a valuable lesson learned in the hands, in the hands of Sir Terry Pratchett. I, I will take that to heart as uh, advice as well. Uh, right. Listen, John, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Oh, it's been a real pleasure, Neil. Thank you. Despite all of that, we've still only dipped a toe into Parker. I'd love to have talked more about your grotesque villains, for example. There's all loads of other stuff we haven't talked about. However, this is my announcement here. I am planning to do a whole read-along podcast of the Parker series as a kind of addendum to this main show. And I'm hoping to kick that off next year. So it would be great at some point in that journey to speak to you again, if possible, to delve a little deeper into Parker and his world. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't have to read them. You don't have to read them. You just come and talk about them. Oh, fantastic! Not, not that I don't heartily recommend them, but, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Once no. we clarify, at some point later on, perhaps when we finish, it'd be great to get you back on to kind of talk in retrospect in more detail about this stuff. Maybe I'd love to. Thank you, and I'm very flattered that you consider it. So thank you very much. Amazing. Well, all I've got to say is, John Connolly, thank you for talking scared. Oh, Neil, it's been a real joy. Thank you very much. I won't go on too long this week, because that was, after all, a longer episode than usual, and we shouldn't start off the new year with self-indulgence, should we? A few things to pick up on, though. Firstly, Shadow Voices is an absolute treat. I mean, I'm nowhere near finishing it, because, like I say, it's a thousand pages long and it weighs a ton. But I'm dipping in and out in between reading books for future episodes, and there's just so much in there from so many authors that I've never heard of. And I'm someone who considers himself well-versed in genre fiction. And when it comes to gothic and horror, Irish literature really is the bedrock. The Mount Rushmore of 19th century horror should feature Bram Stoker, Oscar Wilde, Charles Maturin and Sheridan Le Fanu. All of them Irish writers. Mary Shelley should also be on there, of course, but you get my point. So an understanding of Irish literature's role in shaping this genre that we all adore, well, that shouldn't be neglected, and Shadow Voices is a great place to start with a deeper exploration. So this is a crude, clattering segue, but if you are interested in learning more about the history of the genre, you could do worse than check out my ongoing History of Horror series with Professor Roger Luckhurst. Prof Roger and I talked through the evolution of horror culture from the 18th century all the way to the present day. That's a Patreon exclusive and it sits there alongside a growing body of extra content that you can access for just a few dollars a month and you can support this show in the process. Head to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or just follow the link in the show notes. And a huge thanks to Jason Figueroa who is the latest sign-up. Welcome Jason. Grab a seat. Back to John Connolly, though, and more specifically, Charlie Parker. If you haven't read the Parker books, do yourself a favour and buy the first one right now. It's called Every Dead Thing, and it's, it's the start of the best, and I mean best, and the oddest, most brutally poetic or poetically brutal series fiction out there. As you heard, it it moves and changes and evolves and becomes something wholly other than you expect. It's wonderful. The books do need to be read in sequence, though. John said that he writes them to allow for reading in any order. Well, with all due respect, I utterly disagree. The accumulating weight of grief and incident and experience and, and the bond between the main characters, that's what makes these books tick. By the end, there is the most elaborate, arcane lore in place. But the most important aspect that distinguishes Parker's character from a myriad of other pained and sometimes painful detectives is that Parker changes and he grows. And that growth has to be experienced alongside him, not in fits and starts. But that's where I come in. Because as you heard me mention there at the end, My proposed Charlie Parker read-along is now confirmed. I have no idea what that means, what real shape it will take, just that it is going to commence soon as an addendum to the main show. 
don't worry if you aren't interested in Charlie Parker it, those episodes won't affect how many episodes I put out as normal but I am going to do it and I might call it think about this I might call it Talking Bird which is a rhyming reference to the character's nickname in fact that is a great name so yeah consider that claimed and copyrighted I'm hoping to start recording those shows in the first quarter of this year and then proceed systematically through each book. Let me know if you've got any thoughts on how I should approach it because, I don't know, it's a new venture and all opinions are welcome. You can get in touch the usual ways, email to talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or find me on social media, Twitter, Insta, TikTok. It's all the same, it's talkscaredpod. If you're new to this show or a long-term listener, make sure you follow and say hi. And if you can, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else. I've had some great reviews recently and they make all the difference. Last thing to mention is John's chosen recommendation of Dark Matter by Michelle Paver and my own mention of All the White Spaces by Ali Wilkes. With the cold weather hitting hard and the long nights still kind of clamping down on us, what better time to read about people who are far colder and far more desperate than, than us? Both Dark Matter and All the White Spaces are top-tier polar horror, and that's a genre that there isn't enough of, to be honest. Sometimes it feels like we jump straight from Lovecraft's Mountains of Madness to Dan Simmons' Terror. Well, Dark Matter is, is slim. It's not much bigger than a novella and it's gripping as hell it's got one of those plots that you just wonder how no one thought of sooner it's quite simple a guy has to overwinter alone in an arctic shack you can't go outside because it's freezing the trouble is there's a ghost there i mean it's just the best idea ali wilkes's book is a whole other beast and she'll be on the show to discuss it very soon i can't wait for that as all the White Spaces is one of my most anticipated books of the year, and, it, and so far it is not disappointing me. Nothing much more to say this week, except tell a friend about the show and come back next week when I'll be talking to Christy Demista about her anti-misogyny novel with teeth. Well, with bared fangs, actually. It's called Such a Pretty Smile. Until then, wrap up warm, set your face to the wind and push on through till morning. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.